This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian at Macquarie University, Professor David Christian. He joined me in the studio to talk about his new book, Origin Story, A Big History of Everything. And you're tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio historian David Christian, who has written a book called Origin Story, A Big History of Everything, and it's out through Alan Lane. And I welcome David now. Hi there. Hi. It's so wonderful to have you in and thank you for making the trip and the time to be here. First of all, David, I'd love to understand your background and your training because uh, your background, your academic expertise started out in a really different area. And I'd just like to know how you professionally came to this point where we are at with origin stories. So uh, you started out um, doing a PhD in Russian history, in I Russian believe. History, in Russian history, on a tiny topic. I mean, uh, the PhD is normally, it's got to be on a fairly small topic because it's you have to prove that you can do extended research and it was actually on a on a failed reform in Russia in the early 19th century which took two years and went absolutely nowhere so (laughs) (laughs) so I think I've been sort of you know um, widening the lens ever since really. Really I also heard that you studied Russian in Russia to do that PhD. Yeah, I uh, I was an exchange student in in what was then Leningrad uh, during the Brezhnev era which was not easy, but incredibly interesting, because during the Cold War, for someone who grew up in England, uh, the Soviet Union was the dark side. It, it was, you know, the other side of the world. So it was absolutely fascinating. And I did research um, in in the archives in Leningrad. Mm, that must have been, I guess, a formative time for you professionally, because doing a PhD is one of those major milestones. But you currently work at Macquarie University, and uh, I'd really like to know how your focus on big history evolved, because it's happened over quite a number of decades. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not always sure exactly why it happened, but, but teaching Russian history during the Cold War, you felt you were almost teaching the history of half the world. So it was already a big topic. And you, you look at a map, as any, any Russian patriot will tell you, this is big. This is seriously big. You know, so, so I already felt I was de- teaching sort of a large topic but, and an important one. But I think what happened is I became more and more concerned with the fact that I was teaching a national history. I'm not Russian, but I was teaching a, a national history. And most historians actually do that most historians in most countries in the world. And the trouble is, I'm not against national histories, but if that's all you teach, the subliminal message you give, I think, is that we humans are divided at the most fundamental level into warring tribes. And I more and more thought, because I remember living through the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was a schoolboy in England during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, I remember one day during the missile crisis a group of us used to play a, 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 a form of fives and one of my friends came up to me afterwards and and shook my hand and I said what's that for he said I'm not sure we'll see each other tomorrow that really shocked me and I remember thinking at the same time I wonder if there are kids over there that side who are thinking exactly the same thing and then I ended up thinking how balmy is this so I thought that as a historian it might be really important to try to teach the history of humanity. In other words, 
to, to see that there's a unifying story that unifies all humans in the way that national stories create a sense of a sort of unifying imagined community for Australians or Russians or, 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 or you know, Chinese people. Can we do the same thing for humanity? Because in a world with nuclear weapons, it seemed to me this is more and more urgent, and it's getting even more urgent given that we're now facing huge global problems that cannot be solved nation by nation, but will require cooperation. Really, we are in the era of globalisation. We're so interconnected. It makes more and more sense to have a unifying story that everyone can subscribe to. Um, And as we'll discover through this discussion, we have a lot more in common than we do in terms of differences. And and I think for for, for me, the the idea of a unifying story, it wouldn't replace existing stories, you know, local stories, personal stories, national stories. It's just one other story that we need on top of all of those to encourage a sense of that that as human beings now we're so globally interconnected that we have to work together to solve big problems like like mm. you know ocean warming climate change declining biodiversity all these huge problems so once I started thinking, how could you teach a history of humanity? Because I had no idea. So I, I think my colleagues thought I was going through a midlife crisis <laughs> at this point. So I, um, I started trying to figure out how you'd teach it. And what happened was I went through this sort of sequence of thoughts that I think probably many other people have been through. If you teach a history of humanity, first thing, you're going to have to teach the Paleolithic. Because chronologically... Most of human history has been Paleolithic. Now, in in teaching in Australia, that is peculiarly strategic. So you're going to have to teach 200,000 years. But then I thought, yeah, but you can't just start, say, okay, humans are here. You have to say, how did humans get here? And then suddenly I realized I'm off the territory of history and into biology. And then I thought, if I'm serious about how humans got here, I have to talk seriously about evolution Mm -hmm. back to the origins of life on Earth. That takes me back four billion years. And to do that seriously, I have to talk about planet Earth and its history. And to do that seriously, I have to talk about how planets form, how stars form, and back and back and back, until eventually I realized there is a starting point at least the way science works right now. And that starting point is the Big Bang. So I began to think, um, having begun with the idea of a history of humanity, maybe to teach that properly, we need a sense of the history of the universe. Can you do that? That was the question. Mm. And I began thinking, well, I'm not sure, but it sounds really interesting. And God bless my colleagues. They let me have a shot at it. (laughs) Well, that is also a really important point, to have the time to do such a project like this, which is very extensively researched. I mean, it's mind-boggling the amount of information that's in here, but also is communicated in such plain, relatable language. Oh, I'm delighted you find it. Yeah, I'm, yes. you find it accessible. I mean, I worked Absolutely. really hard to make it. But but I've been teaching this for almost 30 years. When I began, I, I, I promise you, I hadn't, I don't think any of us who worked on that first course, and there were a lot of us, 
really could see a coherent story. It was a bit like looking at a kind of stained glass window, you know, there's the sort of, there's the, the cosmo- cosmology bit, and then there's the geology bit, and then there's the biology mm. bit, and then there's the, you know, the, there's the anthropology bit. And they all have different colours, they have different, different jargon, different methodologies, different conventions. So at first it was really hard to see a unifying story. But I was probably the only one who sat in on all the lectures because we got, we invited, when we first began in 1989, I invited lecturers from right across the university. And that was interesting because some people I'd say, would you feel like giving a a lecture summing, summing up the whole of astronomy for my first year history students? And some people said, I don't think so. Mm. But then some people said, yeah, I'd love to have a go. And so we ended up with this wonderful group of lecturers. Um... But at first, it was really hard to see the coherent story. But over the years, gradually, I began to see a more coherent story. And within two or three years, I was absolutely convinced that there is a story here that is teachable. You can Mm. teach it at the university level, just as I'd been teaching Russian history. And now we know you can teach it at the high school level, because we're doing this in well over a 1,000 schools, about 200 of them in Australia. I have seen certainly the university system become a lot more broad and multidisciplinary and they're moving away from that highly specialised focus, at least in arts and humanities degrees. They're looking to broaden people's minds into science and other areas. And this book really is about, as you've said, the origin story this origin story in particular, is based on modern scientific scholarship across many disciplines. And I think it highlights just how interrelated and interdependent the arts, humanities and science, engineering, maths, etc. are, that you really can't separate them. I mean, you can into, you know, you can go into more detail and granularity in certain fields. And as you said, they have a type of lexicon. But really, if you're looking at this bird's eye view, this overarching story, everything is interconnected and everything uh, needs to be explored. It it, it really is. And it's like using a series of different lenses. Each lens can add something. So the real beauty, I think, of trying to put all these stories together is that you do end up with something that's much more than the sum of its parts. And that's not immediately obvious because we, we, we live in a world where there's a sort of fundamental assumption that good teaching and good research is specialised, that you want your teacher to have focused sharply on something. And actually, though you're, you're absolutely right, there is more openness to interdisciplinarity. Nevertheless, there are so many subtle tripwires that make it really difficult mm. to do very interdisciplinary work. And, and, and I think perhaps the first of them is the suspicion that many have that if you go too broad, that means you're, you're, you're going to be superficial. Mm. Now, I, someone like Einstein, I think, for me, is the simple refutation of that idea. We need both breadth and depth in our scholarship. And in the sciences, this is probably better understood, I think, than in the humanities, because in most of the sciences, there are big paradigm ideas. And, you know, scientists working on very detailed projects know that they have to link their research to those big paradigm ideas. But in the humanities, we don't really have those unifying ideas. No. You know, so, so well, the idea of Well, often competing ideas. There's a lot, a lot of competing ideas at yes. times. Yes, Those big ideas, particularly in history. 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because there's no there's no sort of fundamental theory mm. about history. In biology, there is a fundamental theory about the crucial driver. Now, we know that it works in incredibly exotic and interesting and sometimes counterintuitive ways, but we know there's a driver. And that unifies research in biology, and it has done ever since Darwin. Uh, in, in history, we don't yet have a paradigm idea. I mean, I'm actually personally optimistic that one may eventually emerge, but, mm. but at the moment, that's a very unfashionable idea, I would say, in the humanities. Let's head into how you start this book because there is a really important timeline that is detailed and it goes into the billions of years that we're looking at. It divides each of these major changes or events into thresholds. Why did you look at complexity as being the reason why we tip over into a new threshold? Well, can I back up a bit? Because, yes. um in in a sense, what we're doing is, at least I think, what those of us trying to do big history are doing is very simple. It's like making a quilt. You know, I take the cosmologist story and I try mm. to stitch it up with the uh, chemist story and the planetary scientist story and the biologist story. So the, 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 the detailed information really comes from many, many different disciplines. So I, I wouldn't even say that I'm trying to offer a theory here at all. I am mm. trying to find the most coherent way of linking up all those stories into something coherent. Mm. And over the years, the, the theme that's emerged as, at least for me, and I think for quite a few other people who are interested in big history, as the one that sort of holds it all together, is the idea that the early universe was very simple. I mean, you can think of a thin, homogeneous mist, almost perfectly uniform, of hydrogen and helium atoms with light traveling through them, lots of dark matter, which we don't understand, and dark energy, which we don't understand. Mm. That's it. No structure at all. You know, not even any stars and not even any higher chemicals. So that's, that's the starting point not long after the Big Bang. So the big question is, how do you get from there to the staggering complexity that we see today on planet Earth? Um, which, and, and this today's globalized world is, is probably the most complex thing that we're aware of at the moment. There may be more complex things, but it's the most complex thing we're, we're aware of. So how do you get there? I think the answer is you, you can see a series of steps at which new things appeared. And whenever they appear, it's always magical. It's like, it's like watching a baby being born, honestly. You know, something that did not exist now exists. So it's kind of miraculous. But can we describe it clearly and scientifically, these, these moments when something new appears? And over the years, and this is really a teaching device, it's not a theoretical device, We've, we've found it works to focus on about eight of these thresholds. That's moments at which something new appears in the universe that creates the foundation for the next threshold and the next threshold and so on. So, so that's really the logic behind the eight thresholds that give the book shape. It's an organizing principle rather mm. than a theory. I mean, if you wanted to, you could have a hundred thresholds, but that'd be harder to read. <laughs> very, very much harder to read. But let's 
then look at what the first threshold is and perhaps identify or acknowledge the fact that this is really a secular humanist approach. Um, You're not trying to override, as you said, other people's stories, but this is beginning from a point which is it's the Big Bang Theory um, and that God is not the creator of this universe. And I really like the quote that you opened with in Threshold One, which you write, you said, at the age of 18, Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher, gave up on the idea of a creator God after reading the following passage in the autobiography of John Stuart Mill, quote, my father taught me that the question, who made me, cannot be answered, since it immediately suggests the further question, who made God? I guess that's the foundation really here is to say that science is what we can be certain of, or at least most of science we can be fairly certain of and have an evidence base for. And therefore, this book is based on where the evidence has led yeah. historians and um, yourself and other scientists. The reason I call this an origin story is partly so that I don't give the impression that all previous origin stories are kind of eclipsed by this. That's not quite the way it works, because we can guarantee that in 100 years' time, parts of this story are going to look kind of naive and, and cute. So, But this is the origin story that seems to exist right now. So if you live in today's world right now, this seems to be the origin story you, you should go for. Mm. And it just happens that one of the qualities of this origin story is that it does not begin with a creator God. Now, there are actually many origin stories that don't begin with a creator God. I mean, certain, certain versions of, you know, of the Buddhist origin story or, or you know, Hindu thinking, the Upanishads, um, there's just... There's a place, and our job as humans is, is, is to live within it. So this is not actually unique to modern science. It's just the quality of this particular origin story that the, the universe is a sort of given. Um, it's not created by someone. Therefore, it doesn't contain moral rules. We humans are the generators of meaning and of ethical rules in this origin story. Yes, Yes, exactly. So you basically say at the beginning there's a big bang. This is 13.8 billion years ago and quite helpfully in that timeline you've divided it. It's a bit easier to relate to billions when we're talking about so so many years across this chronology from 13.8 billion years ago to today. Actually, if I could explain that chronology, Mm, it's sort of, you know, if you're covering 13.8 billion years, the first temptation is to think, Oh my God! You know, there's, yeah. a, there's going to be so much information. I'll never deal with it. So this is all about extreme compression, and that chronology has, I believe, 19 dates. So the idea is you can you can really get a hold of this story with about 19 dates, eight of which are these sort of thresholds. Th- th- what I do in the in the in the timeline is to give the absolute date. So 13.82 billion years ago is the best date the cosmologist can give us at the moment. But then I divide them all by a billion because our minds are not designed by evolution to deal with a million years. We, we, we can't do it. Um, and if a geologist says they understand what 10 billion years is, don't believe them. They, <laughs> they can't do it. Um, so I've divided all the dates by a billion. So, so that means that we can imagine the universe beginning about 13 years and eight months ago. Now, we can deal with 13 years. So if you divide all the dates by a billion, then that helps you get a sense of the shape of the overall story. Mm. So humans appear on this timeline about 100 minutes ago. 
on that 13-year timeline. Um, so that, that gives you some sense of how recent, we're very, very mm. recent arrivals in this story. Yep, and that's threshold six. So we have about... That's threshold six. Yeah, that's we have right. five thresholds with no humans, <laughs> which was also fascinating to read a history book where humans are really not the main player. It's quite unique, really, in terms well, it, of an origin story. Yeah, and I have to say... Clearly, it makes some people very, very uncomfortable indeed, because I think there's a sort of definition of a conventional definition of history as about about humans and based on documents. But that actually already excludes huge numbers of humans. Uh, It excludes most of the humans who lived before about. 5,000 years ago when we get the first documents. Um, so so this, th- th- I see this as, 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 as much, more, much, more, much more inclusive. Um, but it's a way of extending our idea of what history is. So let's take seriously the idea that history is about the past. If the past can help us understand the present, it can provide some sort of illumination by providing context, then the question arises, for me as a historian, how far back can we go in time and still get some illumination? And I'm absolutely convinced that we can go back 13.8 billion years and mm. still learn new things about us humans. Well, you do. I think that the explanation you provide of the Big Bang is such a great one because all I have ever come across is that there was a Big Bang and then the yeah. world happened. And the detail with which you go into it that is so easy to understand is phenomenal. And I think it's so useful for everyone to understand that it wasn't like all the elements of the universe were not created in that one moment. Yeah. In fact, yeah. it's even down to milliseconds that things are changing and evolving. Yeah. Once again, I go back to the fact that I'm, I'm a historian, you mm. know, trying to tease out from the incredibly rich and rigorous science generated by cosmologists, something that a non-cosmologist can really get a hold of. That's a story. And, and so within modern science, there are these, these, these wonderful stories. The best we can do for understanding, this is threshold one, mm. uh, which creates a universe. So you need a, a universe if you're going to tell this story. Um, the best we can do about the very beginning is say that we don't know. It's actually like the problem of that Bertrand Russell talked about. We actually do not know how to kickstart this story. Um, so just as in the deistic religions, at some point you have to say, and God made. And, and the question, who made God, is just left hanging mm. there. Same thing with the Big Bang. We have to say, well, something appeared. Uh, we don't know what it came out of. We don't know why it appeared. It was smaller than an atom. And it seems to have contained everything that's in our universe today. Every smidgen of energy, every photon of light, you know, every potential that exists, every atom that's in you and me was in that tiny thing. And, and, and at first that sounds completely crazy. But the thing is, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that tells us that this is actually how our universe began. Um, the, 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 the fundamental one and the easiest one to understand is simply the, the realization that our universe is expanding. So if it's expanding now, you can sort of mentally wind the story backwards and there must have been a point at which it was incredibly small. Mm. And, and the other thing is that the physicists can now actually figure out 
the stages and the evolution of that incredibly small thing. And we now can figure out with a lot of detail, and we even have some direct evidence, we can sort of take its temperature because we have this release of energy, the cosmic background radiation, about 300 and almost 400,000 years after the Big Bang, and we can detect it. And we can measure tiny changes. So we know how much variation there was in pressure and temperature about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. So we now know quite a lot about the early universe. And we'll learn a lot more in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yes, and to put things into a bit of perspective, you write that our universe began as a point smaller than an atom and you then have a great example, which is that you could squeeze a million atoms into a full stop on a page. Yep. It's yep. mind-boggling. <laughs> it is. And, and again, I don't think any of us can really get our brains around it. We need sort of, um, you know, little metaphorical tricks like yeah. that to, just to begin to grasp what's going on. Exactly. And, and also the wonder that is yep. what this is. Yes. I... I, I, I um, I, sh- I had a there was a, there was a rather negative review of the book that said um, this is a cold book because it doesn't help us understand a Bach fugue. Well, my first reaction is I'm not writing about Bach fugues, and I think the reader must have missed the sense of awe mm. that these stories can can generate, including what you've just mentioned. Well, I was constantly in awe at what was happening, Um, certainly in those first thresholds when uh, you go through the Big Bang, you say that there were only two elements, which is hydrogen and helium, and then we obviously have so many more elements that came after, and I'm sure many people will remember the periodic table songs so they can recall (laughs) that it's a very long list, Uh, but then we saw this kind of chemical environment and this this matter evolve in the uh, universe to the point where we do end up with an Earth, um, with other planets and stars around those planets, but all of that wasn't there right at the beginning. So I just found the way that you staged that information and I guess teased it out was extremely valuable too. Great. Well, I'm glad it was clear. Mm. Because, but the idea of thresholds is is a really helpful, I think, through a quite complicated story. One of the things I, I hope this book can do is because I, you know, I teach a lot of students who they sign up for a history course. And the first shock is when I stand up and start talking about the Big Bang and they think, no, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> but, but I think many students eventually realise that there is a good story to be told. And in this, and that the, the thresholds can help us through the story, like, like chapter headings. So how do you get from that thin, almost perfectly uniform mist of hydrogen and helium atoms to something more complex. Well, threshold two is the creation of stars. Um, And that's, uh, again, there's a lot of technical stuff in the science, but there is a quite simple story to be told. And, And the main actor here is just gravity, because gravity is one of the four main forms that energy assumed within a split second of the Big Bang. And what gravity does is clump things together. So gravity sort of worked on that early homogeneous universe and broke it up into clumps. And each of those clumps, the way gravity works is the denser things are, the more powerful gravity is. So they they scrunch together under the force of gravity more and more tightly. And as they scrunch together, they got hotter and hotter and hotter. Now, most of the universe, as it's expanding, is cooling. 
So the whole universe is getting cooler, but these lumps of matter of hydrogen and helium are getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And then suddenly they cross a threshold. It's probably about 10 million degrees at which protons start fusing together and they emit a huge amount of heat and light because some of their matter is turned into pure energy. This is exactly what happens, by the way, in a hydrogen bomb. Mm. So you can think of the sun as like a kind of massive hydrogen bomb that's going to keep exploding for about nine billion years. So that's how the first stars lit up. Um, And suddenly fusion begins, and at the center of each of these clumps of hydrogen and helium, you now suddenly have a furnace that's pushing back against gravity. And then the whole thing stabilizes, and you have a star. And that's how the first stars appear. And a universe with stars, I I hope you can see this is a, a, a threshold of increasing complexity, because a universe with stars is very different from one without stars. It's got galaxies, it's got, it's got, there are light spots, there are dark spots, there are sort of dense spots, there are empty spots. So it's a much, got much more structure. So that's the, 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 the second threshold. Mm. And it really beautiful um, description that you use from Arthur Eddington, an English astronomer, is that you say that uh, astronomy is like walking through a forest of saplings, mature trees and ancients yeah. close to death. And by studying trees at different points in their life cycles, you can eventually figure out how they grow, mature and die. It is a beautiful description, isn't it? It's amazing. And it, it, it captures the astonishing fact. I mean, I'm The more I worked on this, the more gobsmacked I was at the skills of scientists. So stars live for so long that we're never going to watch a star from its infancy to its old age. What we see is billions of stars at different stages, and slowly you can figure out what is the life history of a star. Mm. And for this story, the crucial thing is that, that in old age, they start breaking down. And they start breaking down because they run out of protons, basically, to fuse in their center. And then the breakdown is quite violent and eventually generates higher and higher temperatures. And in those even higher temperatures, you can start fusing not just individual protons, but pairs of protons, and you can form larger and larger nuclei. You can form carbon, you can form oxygen, you can form nitrogen, and you can do this up to iron. But then when a really large star dies, it blows up and generates even higher temperatures that create all the other elements of the periodic table. Mm-hmm. So that's threshold three. And that's how you get a universe with now not just two elements, because you couldn't make you and me from hydrogen and helium. No. Um, but, but you've got all the 92 stable elements of the periodic table. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that allows the, that means the universe is now chemically more complex than it was. Yes, and I'd love to bring in here the concept of entropy because it seems very relevant to what we've just been chatting about. I think, I mean, if I take seriously the idea that this is a story, you know, you sort of need a villain in a story. And in this story, if the story is about creating more and more complex things, such as you and me, Mm. um, then you need a villain. And entropy is the villain because entropy tries to break everything down, you know, Anything interesting or complex or beautiful that appears, entropy's goal is to break it down again into something uninteresting, unstructured, uncomplex. So we know that the fundamental tendency of the universe is 
for things to get simpler. Now, so this creates a sort of central plot line. And this is why the idea of increasing complexity is, is, is so interesting. Mm. How can you build more complex things in, in a universe ruled by the second law of thermodynamics? Eddington once said, the second law of thermodynamics is perhaps the most fundamental law of physics. If your theory goes against it, forget your theory. You know. So that's the big question. How can you get more complex things despite the second law of thermodynamics? And I'm not sure that we have a perfect answer yet, but the best answer I know of well, do you want me to try this answer? Because yes, it, it, definitely, it, 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 I it's do, sort yeah. of crucial to understanding how complex things can exist at all. Mm. How is it possible for you and you and me to exist? I, I think it, it's this. You need energy to create complex things, to hold them together. I mean, that's why you and I need to eat food. Because if we don't eat food, we fall apart. And entropy wins. You know. So um, stars need energy, and energy is provided by fusion, that, that fusion mechanism at the center. And when fusion breaks down, they break down. So you need energy. Um, but why does entropy allow the creation of more complex things? Well, complex things depend on these huge flows of energy now look at the world around us today you know think of a city like melbourne think of the flows of energy through melbourne the beautiful thing from the point of view of entropy the villain is that these huge flows of energy organized by complex things degrade that energy so complex things speed up the process of degradation and that's why entropy sort of allows complex things to emerge. I talk about an entropy tax. It's as if entropy takes a tax from every complex thing. Eventually, gazillions and gazillions of years in the future, entropy will win. There'll be no complex things. But meanwhile, we live in a young universe where it's still possible to create complex things. And I think that's glorious. Mm. It's absolutely wondrous. Basically, we've gone through the first three thresholds. Yeah. Uh, we move into the fourth threshold, which is molecules and moons. And uh, and I've, I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about how hydrogen and helium became very irrelevant very quickly and we had other elements that became so much more fundamental to Earth, such as oxygen, silicon and uh, aluminium and iron, which make up over 80% of the Earth's crust. And then there are other elements such as calcium, carbon and phosphorus playing lesser roles. But uh, as you then say on Earth, hydrogen plays only a medium-sized role and helium is barely ever there. So That's right. How do we get from that simple to um, molecules to uh, an earth that – because we'll get to the biosphere and the absolute yeah. – Actually, can I back up a second yes. and introduce another concept? One of the mm. really interesting things about trying to tell the story is I, I began by saying that each discipline had its own jargon. So in some areas, we had to try to find language that worked across multiple disciplines – and, and this idea of increasing complexity is one. But another is the idea of Goldilocks conditions. Um, so when we talk about complexity, it's important to remember that complex things appear in only in very special places in the universe. Most of the universe is still very simple. So the, the, our Earth is an incredibly special and 
precious place, just a beautiful place for the creation of more complex things. This is why this, this, um, th- this talk about the, the balance of chemicals is really important. In most of the universe, hydrogen and helium still make up something like, I think it's more than 95% of the atoms in the universe. They still dominate the universe. The, all the other elements are a tiny, tiny sprinkling. But one of the reasons for calling the Earth a Goldilocks environment is that in Earth, the young Earth, as the young sun blasted away at the planets that were sort of closest to it, the lightest elements were the ones most likely to be blasted away. So if you take all these molecules, you blast away most of the hydrogen and helium, suddenly you're left with this incredibly rich mix of all the other elements of the periodic table. And that's what you find in rocky planets such as Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars. You don't find it in Jupiter and Saturn, which are much simpler actually they're much more like the sun they're dominated by still by hydrogen and helium so that creates this really rich chemically rich environment with all of those elements you can create well you can create new and more complex molecules you can also create planets because you can create dust you can create ice so that planets are the fourth threshold Mm. um, and they're created in a universe that now has 92 elements rather than just two. And you say uh, that there are two processes that formed this solar system, solar wind and accretion being the two kind of key. Yeah, I mean, that's an oversimplification. A Mm. planetary scientist would would want to add (laughs) about 100 other elements, but but they're probably the crucial ones. Accretion is simply the fact that when a young star forms in an environment where there are kind of clouds that contain all the other elements, a thin spattering of all the other elements, then those, that material will orbit it. And as, it, as that material circles around, eventually some of these dust particles or ice particles will start to stick together. And eventually you'll get things like comets or asteroids. And if you wait long enough, you may get them sticking together within each orbit to create planets and moons and asteroids. And that's the process of accretion. And the solar wind is the other one, which, um, which drives the lighter elements, above all hydrogen and helium, away from the inner orbits of the solar system. So that's why you get the rocky planets close to the sun, because they're basically, they are, they're, they're, these are regions stripped of hydrogen and helium. Out at, once you get out to Jupiter and Saturn and beyond, then that's where all this hydrogen and helium settles. So, so they're still dominated by hydrogen and helium. So we do reach a point where there is life. Um, This is threshold five. Threshold five, yep. It's pretty important (laughs) um, because it's really setting up humans essentially because we then have cells and uh, and this is um, really interesting you say that life as we now know it arose from exotic chemistry in the element rich environments which we've just been discussing of the young planet earth almost four billion years ago and uh, you talk about the biosphere being a thin layer at the planet's surface, which is made up of living organisms. And, and uh, their remains. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really liked your description of cells and their drive or what they're there to do, what their function is. 
and you say that it is to stay alive despite entropy and unpredictable surroundings and to make copies of themselves so that they can then do the same thing. In terms of this description or our understanding of life and threshold five, you really are looking at cells and you're also looking at the last universal common ancestor. Um, Could you talk a bit about what makes this threshold so significant, particularly for us now? Yeah. Well, we're living things. So, mm. so the appearance of living things has to be significant f- for us. We only know of life on planet Earth. But I think more and more scientists would say the betting is pretty good, that, that there's a lot of bacterial life in the universe, probably a lot less large life like, like you and me. Um, and we still don't know all the details about exactly how life appeared. We do know that it appeared in this environment that allowed incredibly rich, exotic chemical experimentation early on the Earth. And with life, you get a level of complexity that has completely new qualities. Now, I'm not sure that anyone knows how to describe this properly. The best thing that I think we can say about every living thing is the odd thing about it is that it acts as if it had purpose. Now, what that really means, I'm not sure I understand. But it's rocks don't push back against their environment. Basically, they're just governed by the rules of what's happening around them. Mm. Living organisms seem to push back against their environment. They, um, they respond to changes in their environment. They use information about their environment, which is absolutely crucial. And they act as if even the simplest bacterium acts as if it's trying to do two things. So one is survive as long as possible in a fluctuating environment. That means, you know, I have to look for energy to keep myself going. I have to run away from danger. From If it's too hot, I have to move away from it. Um, and then the second thing is to reproduce. Because if, if it simply lived and, and died, well, it's not very interesting. But reproduction means that even when the individual organism dies, the template lives on. And the templates over time can slowly change. And that's the mechanism that Darwin identified mm. that, that, that created from the earliest living organisms, which were tiny single-celled things, the vast diversity of life that we see on today's planet, including eventually us. Exactly. We're talking about evolution here, really, and the fact that, uh, as you said, all organisms alive today are related genetically, some more so than others. Uh, And now that we've been able to sequence the human genome and plant genomes and uh, animal genomes, we can certainly narrow down just what is similar and what's dissimilar. That said, sometimes we're still not aware of what exactly a gene is doing when it's there. In terms of uh, the earliest life, you write that the Earth consists of microscopic fossils found in Western Australia and that those particular fossils were bacteria, perhaps, that lived 3.4 billion years ago. That's one of the, the claims or one of the main claims, which is of the earliest form of life. I'd like to talk a bit more about um, the more developed forms of life, such as uh, mammals, which you go into greater detail. And you say that humans and chimps share a common ancestor 
and they did so about seven or eight million years ago. That's quite short in the, this oh, this book's abs- chronology. Tiny. Yes, yes, yep. it's very very recent. While you say uh, humans and bananas followed different genetic paths <laughs> for about eight hundred million. That's right. Years. That means that, that 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 you know I and a banana had a common ancestor about eight hundred million years ago, which is spooky to think about. But yes, we can be absolutely <laughs> sure it's true. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite scary. That said, I, I um, had a guest on the show two weeks ago, Daniel Shamovitz, who's a plant biologist, who was saying that we also, you know, share so many genes in common yes. with plants. It's quite disturbing. Which yeah. is not, I think, this is one of the ways, reasons I, I, I love this story, because the conventional way of teaching history tends to separate us out from the biosphere. Now, once you realise that that you know your <laughs> every banana you eat is actually you're you're, you're eating a kind of distant cousin you know <laughs> uh, a, a billion a billion degrees removed but mm. we are part of a community yes uh, and we're all related we are very much part of the biosphere mm. and that helps us understand ourselves much much better and our responsibility. And our responsibilities, absolutely. Mm. But, but sorry, to go back to your earlier yes. point, um, th- th- this, this, I, I've divided the story of evolution in, in two parts, which is little life and big life. And it's as if single cells explored a lot of the techniques and gadgets that you need in order to survive. Um, so so th- they explored lots of methods of surviving as a single cell. And then only about 600 million years ago, do we suddenly get a proliferation of large organisms, which is organisms created by millions or billions of cells actually working together to form one organism. And large organisms appear quite late. That suggests that creating large organisms is quite difficult, whereas creating bacteria looks as if it may be fairly simple if you've got the right Goldilocks conditions because they appeared fairly early in the history of the Earth. So large organisms appear about 600 million years ago. Mm. Um, Mammals only about 200 million years ago, something like that. And primates, the group to which we belong to, less than 100 million years ago. Which is... Which is quite brief, just yesterday, quite <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you you write that the first multicellular organisms were probably plants because they had chloroplasts inside their cells, so they could do photosynthesis. But what I found very uh, interesting was that the earliest evidence for multicellular animals comes from the oceans of the Ediacaran period, named after the Ediacaran Hills in South Australia, right in our own country, where the first fossils from this period were discovered in the 1940s. Yep. Well, I mean, the 19th century, the study of fossils, of course, without, without sort of really powerful microscopes, they could only... You know, it, it was sort of naked eye work most mm-hmm. of the time. So, so about 540 million years ago in the Cambrian, you suddenly get a lot of uh, organ- large organisms with hard shells. So for 19th century paleontologists, it really looked as if life popped up about 540 million years ago. Since then, of course, we've, we've learned that bacteria popped up much earlier. And the Ediacaran um, period was discovered that there were organisms about 60 million years before the Cambrian explosion. Um, Became clear from these fossil traces, really, in South Australia. Mm. And 
those organisms were soft-bodied, and that's why it was so hard to see them, that they weren't really identified in the 19th century. But we now know that the Ediacaran period is really the first period in which large-bodied organisms really flourish on planet Earth. Mm. And obviously that research presumably still continues because in many of these periods and eons that you're talking about, we have examples, but we know that that can't possibly be the most comprehensive picture yet. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true for the origins of life too, by the way. I suspect the earliest life will be pushed back to 3.8, 3.9, maybe even 4 billion years ago. Mm -hmm. It's evolving. You say that we human beings share about 90% of our genes with other mammals and you do compare brain sizes and neurons uh, between certain mammal species and we get to the point of threshold six which is when humans enter the picture and you talk about the fact that we belong to a mammalian order which is primates and many would know that there are things like chimpanzees, monkeys, gorillas in that group of animals or mammals. But I was fascinated to hear about the difference between the cortex in mammal species being around 10 to 40% of brain size, whereas in primates, it then moves up to 50%. And then in humans, it makes a massive jump up by another 30% to 80%. And that there is still a substantial gap between chimpanzees and that primate level versus humans. So although we do have a great deal in common, there still is a substantial difference not only in um, the cortex but also the cortical neurons. Yeah. In, in our lineage, brains evolved quite rapidly, particularly in the last million years. And this is actually a bit of a puzzle because you, you could ask, why didn't earlier organisms develop big brains if they, if they make you so powerful? And the answer really is that brains are very costly organisms. They take up a lot of energy um, and they cause other problems. I mean, a, um, you know, a female giving birth to a large-brained baby, birth is much more difficult. So, so there are lots of reasons why many organisms seem to have avoided, you know, I'm talking anthropomorphically, yes, but they seem yes. to have avoided going down the track of large brains. So we're still not absolutely clear why our lineage sort of went down that track. But mm. we shouldn't underestimate chimps. I mean, chimps are very, very clever creatures, but there is some special extra thing that may be very small genetically that explains why we have an utterly different history from chimps. Writing human history is very different from writing chimp history. Isn't it? Yes. And one of the things you identify as being a significant difference is the evolution of language and communication. And that although animals can communicate, and we've seen even research recently about dolphins um, speaking to each other and using certain sounds as names for each other. Um, So there is some level of communication between very intelligent animals. Animal language. I mean, birds Mm. communicate. Um, the, The best way. I know of trying to make sense of this and it's really a way of defining what makes us special as a species and why our evolution counts as a turning point in the history of planet earth which I really believe it does Mm. it's as if we not our communication has improved to a point where it's crossed a threshold It's got more precise, the amount we can communicate is larger, and the threshold is the point at which 
so much information is being shared between individuals that information begins to accumulate across generations. Now, I think we can be pretty sure that that is not true of other species, because in dealing with other species, the best way of understanding their history is to talk about genes, not culture. We don't mm. see cultures that that give them more and more powerful technologies over time. With humans, we do. So for all living organisms, information is power. How much you know about your environment gives you control over energy flows and resource flows. So now, suddenly, you have a species that's crossed this threshold that means that information begins to accumulate from generation to generation. So later generations have more information than earlier generations. That means they have more control over energy flows in the biosphere and resource flows. That means they can support larger populations. And we see this even in the Paleolithic. This is not just to do with farming. Yes. Because in the Paleolithic, humans spread into more and more niches. And by 10,000 years ago, you can find humans in every continent on Earth. You can find mm. them in, you know, northeastern Siberia during the Ice Ages. You can find them in the deserts of Australia. You can find them in, you know, the, the, the tropical forests. You can find them on islands. So this is already a staggering technological achievement in the Paleolithic. And if I, I think the best explanation is simply this capacity to share information so that information accumulates over time. Yes. Yes, exactly. The more and more that humans from other civilizations or areas on the globe uh, relate to each other and share information, the more complex Absolutely. we have become, haven't we? Absolutely. And, and what, what is striking, and this is again one of the reasons why I love the wide lens of big history, is if you study history conventionally, it's impossible to see how weird this is. But if you study the whole history of the biosphere, you can say something which I think is pretty spectacular, but very clear. We are the first species in four billion years that can accumulate information with such power that we have ended up dominating the biosphere. And on the scale of big history or the biosphere, this has happened very fast. It's like an mm. explosion. 200,000 years is tiny. And of course, most of the changes happen very recently because this process of accumulating information is, is, is a sort of accelerating one. I mean, you just have yes. to think of the internet or printing, you know, to, to, to see that. Exactly. And as you also say, um, the, the fact of actual energy sources like coal being a major driver as well. We move to the seventh threshold, which you've mentioned, farming. Yep. When I first looked at that, I thought, oh, that's an interesting threshold <laughs> to reach <laughs> because it's not the Industrial Revolution, which often people would say would mark the Anthropocene. We're taking a step back before that to yep. agrarian societies and that creation of energy through more plant sources and more food sources then builds a population uh, that dramatically increases. And you said that by 1400 CE, human populations had grown from about 5 million at the end of the last ice age to 500 million. So that's quite a huge yep. increase. One of the interviews I had last year was with Professor Robert Jensen from the University of Texas. And he was talking about 
uh, farming as being an important point in time also, but for gender, uh, because this was a point where we saw um, that there was a need for more and more humans to create more and more energy, such as food sources. And so that's where we saw some of the beginnings of gender inequality. Women were then seen for their ability to produce children and therefore uh, resourcing on lands and farms uh, to create this kind of energy that that the population needed to progress. What is your view on that? Well, again, if I I can go back back a step, um, every time you see one of these thresholds, you can follow the energy because you need energy, dense flows of energy to, to create new things. So you can ask, what is the energy flow that creates this? Well, with Agriculture, we know what the energy flow is. It's energy that's already flowing through the biosphere. It's captured by photosynthesis by plants through photosynthesis from the sun. It's flowing through the biosphere. What agriculture does is not create new energy so much as allow one species, our own, to grab more energy, more of that energy flowing through the biosphere. And the way we do it is by um, manipulating our environments so as to increase the production of those species we can use and reduce the production of those species we can't use. We call them weeds or pests. Mm. And the end result of doing that is more of the energy flowing through the biosphere gets to us humans. So it's like an, an energy grab. But you're absolutely right that the gender consequences for this are, are, are huge because in peasant societies, the fundamental rule is for a peasant family to survive, the one resource over which it has most control is children. So it's absolutely essential in a peasant family to maximise the number of children you have. That wasn't really true in foraging societies, and it's no longer true today. But in peasant societies, it was. And what that did was locked women into a limited number of roles. Mm. So as these energy flows from farming increased populations and allowed more complex types of human societies to emerge with more and more roles, and some of them were power roles, males were in a much, much better position to take up those roles because they weren't tied down to the reproductive roles. Mm. Yes, so I, 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 I agree absolutely. But, yes. but, but again, that can, make, that can be understood best if you see this in terms of energy flows Mm. and a sudden bonanza of energy associated with farming. I just saw those two connections immediately when I read it and thought um, that that it all does make a lot more sense now. And also the rising inequality um, when you move into the eighth threshold, which is the Anthropocene, and um, you quote Thomas Piketty and others, uh, John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith, and those who were saying that endless growth is not really the aim or shouldn't be the aim. It may be for those that are developing, but not for rich societies. The aim should be more that things are distributed more evenly. And I was really interested in that being a key component of this era because it's so relevant still today um, and that we see not just gender inequality but economic inequality in a highly complex world. For those who are unaware of the Anthropocene, we have covered it in an interview I had with um, Clive Hamilton a year ago, but for others who this is the first time they've heard of this kind of terminology, why is the Anthropocene such a significant event and why does that count as threshold eight? By the Anthropocene, 
what I think most people who use that term mean, and it's a, it's a very recent term. Yes. They mean the point at which our species began to control such huge flows of energy and resources that those flows began to equal the great natural cycles, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle. And at that point, and we really crossed that point actually probably in the last 70 years since World War II, during my lifetime, it's very sudden, we suddenly are controlling such vast flows of energy that we have become a planetary force. What we humans do in the next 50 years will shape the future of the biosphere and of millions of other species for thousands, perhaps millions of years. And this is very sudden that we've reached that amount of power. So what's the source of this Mm. sudden increase in power? Well, I more and more think the fundamental source is fossil fuels. So if agriculture gave us access to more of the energy flowing through the biosphere, biosphere from photosynthesis, fossil fuels, which we began to be able to use only from the 18th century, because we that's when we got the technology to do it, fossil fuels represent an utterly new source of energy, vastly larger. If you, if you burn a piece of wood, you're tapping into energy that was captured from the sun within the last 10 or 20 years. If you burn a piece of coal, you're tapping into stores of energy that accumulated over 300 million years since the first forests on Earth. So the Anthropocene... That's the modern world, basically. The era in which humans have become a planetary force is really driven by a vast new bonanza of energy, um, mostly from fossil fuels. So we're now so powerful that we're consuming energy and resources on a scale that's beginning to upset the kind of thermostats that manage our planet, that keep its temperatures within a range that's comfortable for Mm. us and for other living organisms. Um, That's why our power, we're astonishingly powerful, is also dangerous because it's not clear that we fully understand it or that we as humans have the capacity to work together skillfully enough and in a coordinated enough way to manage these flows of energy and to make sure they do not disrupt the biosphere and degrade, and do entropy's work, basically, degrade the future of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and millions of other species. Mm. So that's the challenge of the Anthropocene. I mean, there are also huge possibilities because these flows of energy have also allowed huge numbers of people to live much better than they ever lived before as peasants. Yes, the world is profoundly unequal today, but the the, the positive thing is that billions of people have levels of health, of nutrition that were unthinkable before, and that again builds on these flows of energy. So Mm. can we, so the challenge is really, can we preserve the best of the Anthropocene while avoiding the dangers. And and the first, you know, t- to meet that challenge, the first thing you need is to see it clearly, which you cannot do unless you see human history as part of the larger history of the biosphere. 
Well, that brings us to the future, um, which I want to conclude on. And you say that many of the Goldilocks conditions for crossing a new threshold are already emerging. What do you think those conditions are, some of them? Because obviously we won't know until it's happened, will we? No, of course not. Um, One of the interesting things, when I first began teaching big history, and I hadn't a clue what I was doing really, um, was I think it was the second year, a very smart student came up to me, and I'd just given the last lecture, and we stopped today. And she said, "Uh, look, I love the course, but you can't do that. You're talking about such huge trends that in a course like this, you have to talk about the future. And I immediately agreed with what she said, but as a historian, I feel uncomfortable talking about the future. Anyway, I began trying to do it. So what can you do about the future? You can analyze the very large trends. Those are the trends that are not going to switch in 24 hours, like population growth, like carbon emissions. And those can give you some hints about the future, about both dangers dangers and possibilities. Um, You can also analyze the challenges. But the future is genuinely unpredictable. So the idea that we can predict the future is wrong for the very simple reason that it's politicians in 30, 40 years' time, people who are babies now, Mm. who will be taking those decisions. I can't tell how they'll take them. But if we see the challenges clearly now, then there's a possibility that they will make the right choices. And, of course, the right choice, I think, is by now pretty clear. It's a choice for for a more sustainable relationship with the biosphere. Because at the moment, the the energy flows, including flows, for example, of carbon dioxide, are disrupting uh, very important biospheric processes. And we know that we have to learn to stop doing that. We have to learn to live with the biosphere rather than trying to simply dominate it. And in fact, that means we probably have a lot to learn from indigenous origin stories, which really did understand much better than the modern origin story what it means to live with the planet rather mm. than to try to dominate it. That's so true. And um, in, in the modern origin story that you're looking at, I guess the only thing that we could be sure of, which we started this conversation with, is the fact of entropy and that final end point a long way into the future. But between now and then, who knows? Well, actually, the, the, the entropy will win, but it's, mm. it's so far in the future. I mm. mean, if, if, if 13.8 billion years seems a lot, and that's how old the universe is now, multiply that by a trillion times. That's that's when entropy will finally win. So there's a lot of the universe has a lot of interesting history in the future before before entropy finally wins. And entropy yes. may m- meanwhile is maybe enjoying the game of creating allowing complex things to appear which then degrade energy and so on and so on. So eventually we know entropy will win, but that will be so far off in the future it's not even worth thinking about Mm. so we can't be defeatist about our challenges that we currently face and need to take full responsibility no actually i mean very often i think having having sort of taught courses on 13.8 billion years yes one of the things you can learn from that is there comes a point where you have to pull back in to the personal and the familial and for me that point is when i look at my grandchildren and think, I do 
care. I'm a biological organism. That means I care about their fate. You know, let the universe do, do what it wants, but I actually care about what happens in the next 50 or 100 years. And I mm. think, frankly, most humans care about that. You know, so strangely, the, the this universal perspective is really important and it gives you a sense of your place in the universe, but it can finally bring you back to the fact that we are individuals, we care, we're living organisms, we have a sense of purpose, um, and that purpose is personal and it concerns other humans. That's the perfect way to finish this story, I think, because it's uplifting and also uh, really does bring back what I think this book does, which is give one a felt need to do something about the fact that we are influencing our environment so closely, but also that our environment is so connected to us and that we are really so intertwined that we can't possibly think of ourselves as so high a status that we can just do whatever we like to where we are living today. So I really commend you, David, for writing this book. It's so fascinating to read. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and um, and also so well researched. So yes, obviously a lot of work has gone into this book. I've been speaking with David Christian, who is the author of Origin Story, A Big History of Everything. And it's out through Alan Lane and uh, you can get it in all good bookstores.